Let's turn in our Bibles together again this morning. Take ourselves again to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. As we continue to work ourselves through the great truths that are here, just waiting to be harvested, brought into our storehouse for the knowledge of God. Let's look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Please follow along as I read now. When these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of reformation. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, oversee your word. Intone it to the tunes of our hearts and minds such that its tempo is never forgotten. Its cadence is always with us. Its lyrics are our own. Let us live on your truth, Lord, and follow along with you as you advance us stage by stage in our spiritual growth and walk. Bless your people who are here to faithfully learn from your word. Let them not leave empty, but full. And so bless these words from this preacher that they might do your work. And we all be blessed thereby. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we turn to chapter 9. We have seen the obsolescence in chapter 8 and chapter 7 of the law, of the keeping of the law, of the priesthood that administered the law, now replaced by a new high priest, and of necessity, a new law, a new covenant in Christ. The chapter 9 brings us back, if you will, to a memorial service for the death of the law and those who administered it. And in a real sense, we are entering the museum of time. And last week we went into the museum and looked at the first area of the sanctuary, the holy place, inside the tabernacle and the most holy place behind the second veil of the same tabernacle where the presence of God once resided in the midst of Israel. <clears throat> we took a tour, as it were, in the museum of that edifice, but today we move from just looking at it to the description of what was done therein. This is often the case in many museums, they bring you in and there's a display and then 
In the olden days, someone would speak to you and tell you what went on there. The newer days, you could plug into something and listen to it on earphones, and now I hear it's even more advanced than that. Probably just scan something in front of it and your phone talks to you. I'm not sure I've been to a museum in quite a long time. But this museum, you just got me. And in reality, museums are all about letting go. Honoring the past and learning from the past, but letting the past go its way. There's always value, and even in Corinthians we learn that the words of the Old Testament were given to us for our education, for our edification, for our learning. For we learn about God therein, and we learn about other folks who are following God according to those laws given then. But there's a time for letting go, and letting go, let's just admit it, is a difficult prospect for all mankind, in particular when the traditions we're letting go of existed for hundreds of years. There's a need to move on in life if we would mature. And maturity is still a great part and theme of the book of Hebrews. And God is calling upon the Hebrews to mature in their understanding and grow from keepers of the law of Moses to become worshipers of Jesus Christ and followers of the new covenant. We all understand how hard it is to let go of the youth of the past. Every one of us have been affected in some ways by, by our past. When we were growing up, the, the newest fashion style of the day that was ever so cool. Everyone wanted. The hairstyles. Yes, is that how you dressed? And that's how you fixed your hair, Mommy? Yes, it was, honey. Ew. I can't believe you dress like that. Guess what? Someday that will be you. I hope. Some people never grow up. Sometimes you see the same hairstyle that they wore in high school. It's still there, baby. The same fashions, it's still there. The same music, now don't even mess with me now. I might still be there. Letting go is part of growing up. We also need to put our youth in the past, but we need to put our ignorance in the past as we grow up. Some of us have heard an erroneous tale while we were growing up when we were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we gave that litany of different things. Sometimes we were lied to. And people would say, you can be whatever you want, honey. <clears throat> Which happens to be a lie. You can't be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you're able to be. If you work at it. That's an important lesson for our age and every age. You grow up. You have to let go. I'm not an astronaut, folks. Although I wanted to be at one point. I'm a pastor, which I never wanted to be. I can honestly say that's true 
as a youth, I never wanted to be one of these guys. So you let go. And you grow up. And I'm so glad I'm not an astronaut. Especially now if I had to fly on Chinese rockets. I'm just saying. But also we have to grow up spiritually. Spiritually. Even we must progress from Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, to actually knowing what the Bible tells me about the love of Jesus so that I really know he loves me. The infantile is fine for infants, but Christians must grow up. We can say the B-I-B-L-E, that stands for truth for me or something like that. Did I get that right or wrong? I'm not sure. It's been a long time. B-I-B-L-E. Well, it's good to be able to spell it. Now, can you quote it? Need to know more than just B-I-B-L-N-E. What's inside that book is growth. So this morning we are going to let go, along with the Hebrews, of the past, of the tabernacle, of the services within the tabernacle. In a sense, we're going to go on a reenactment, a verbal reenactment of the tabernacle services. But we do so to, to note, to mark the constant performance of these services and ministrations and their past purposes so that we can recognize, so that we can recognize clearly that they were not capable of permanently removing guilt the guilt of sin. They went on always, continually, reminding people that the way to the holiest, to the presence of God, was not yet made manifest. So let us start to let go now as we hear again of the ministries of the past and move ahead to the new and open way to God through Christ, shall we? Let's look at our first verse again this morning. Hebrews 9, 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services. This first part is the holy place, also called the sanctuary in verse 1 of chapter 9. That sanctified place, that holy place, there was an always sort of ministry. Listen to the words. The priest went always into the first part. Always, we recognize as a continual service. This is a busy place, a, a time when, and a process that was always going on according to the law of Moses. We find that there were the lamps, uh, the oil lamps, and the lighting that had to be tended to twice per day. We read about the lampstand in verse 2, and that had to then be tended to on a daily basis. Note Exodus chapter 27. And by the way, we're going to be in the Old Testament a lot and reading a lot from it for the best description of what went on there is held therein. Exodus 27 describes the ministry of the priests in this sanctuary, the first level of holiness. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil, pressed olives, 
for the light, to cause the lamp to burn continually. And in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. The light that represented the light of God, that unapproachable glory, was to be maintained on that seven-stand candelabra, if you will, the golden lampstand with its beautiful filigrees, with its flowers and petals, filled and continually kept full of olive oil, the wicks trimmed, the light tended, shining forth the duty of the priest. Continually they must remember, don't let it go out. The light must shine. And then the showbread that we learned about as well in our preceding verses, we read the showbread was replaced then every week as part of priestly ministrations. In First Chronicles 9, verse 31, we learn of Mattathiah, of the Levites, the firstborn of Shulam, the Korite, had the trusted office. I really love this. Listen to this. Had the trusted office over the things that were baked in pans. You know, we think of the temple and the things that go on in there, but sometimes we don't think of the behind-the-scenes thing, like the people that had to bring the oil that was crushed from the olives to continually offer this up so that there was oil to burn. And the person who was the baker. There was a baker. There was a one entrusted of all the baking that took place there. And this is the guy, the trusted officer to bake the bread right. And some of their brethren, the son of the Kohathites, were in charge of the preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. And every Sabbath, the bread was exchanged. The old moved out, the new moved in to be in the presence of the Lord in the holy place. Always, the ministry continued, week by week, day by day. The altar of incense that was also mentioned in our preceding passage was a daily ministration. Second Chronicles 13, we highlight this in verse 10, where it says, The sons of Aaron and the Levites attend to their duties, and they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and, note, sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening to keep the ministrations going in an always fashion. And the writer uses always with particular emphasis because now he's going to bring to us the once emphasis. Always as contrasted to once. Notice now verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once. In the first portion, always. In the second, once. Once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. This is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the once-a-year ceremony of sacrifice before the Lord. He may not come in without the blood of the sacrifices for both himself 
and for the people. And note this isn't for sins that were committed by the people that they knew they had committed. These were sins committed by the people that they were ignorant of having crossed God's line and transgressed, which they did in ignorance. When you knew you had sinned, you were supposed to bring an offering for sin because you knew you had sinned. This day was for all the sins God knows about and you've either forgot about or you didn't know you'd messed up in that area. Every year, the Day of Atonement. Describe to us in Leviticus 16, note verse 6. In this establishment of the Day of Atonement, we read, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering. Now pay attention here. Which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. The high priest had no business in the holy place as an unholy man. A sinner was entering the presence of holy God, and atonement had to be made for the high priest with a bull as a sin offering, an acknowledgment of sin. Verse 7, He shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord, listen, to make atonement upon it and let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So once for himself, once a year, once for himself, a bull. And here is how he is to minister it. In Leviticus 16, we read on verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer, full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that the of the testimony, lest he die. So bright is the glory of God even in such a dimmed fashion, it must be clouded with the incense or the high priest would die. Verse 14, we read on, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger. Notice, seven times sprinkling the blood for himself. Blood before the holy God. Once for himself, now once for the people, though there are two goats. Leviticus 16, 20, if you'll skip down there. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, 
Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat. Now, I want you to really zero in here. What's going on? Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man, the goat, listen now, shall bear on itself all their iniquities into an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. We still use this biblical term in our day. And no one who has any sense wants to be or to become the scapegoat. The poor goat is standing there and he has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. He is there this day. And from the symbology of the hands of the high priest placed on the head of the goat before the people and the confession of all of their sins, everyone in Israel knows we deserve punishment and symbolically our guilt is being placed on an innocent animal. And then the innocent animal is kicked out rejected, removed from the presence of the people and removed from the presence of the Lord to carry the weight of the sin symbolically into the wilderness. This is the reality of sin displayed in a physical fashion. Every one of Israel did not deserve to stay part of the people of Israel they were sinners. From the high priest, the necessity of a bull, to the people, the need of a scapegoat, someone to heap the blame upon who doesn't deserve it, who didn't do anything wrong, gets the blame. Can you not see how this needs to pass away because a better scapegoat is coming? Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Only once would he dress this way. Only once a year would he minister this way. And only once would the proclamation be made in this way about how he feels about himself, that he's a sinner before a holy God and in danger of dying in the glorious light of God. And the need that he would have deep within him to be covered, that the guilt must be dealt with, the punishment must be administered, but there is blood needed to clean up sin. And it's heaped upon these innocent animals. Leviticus 16, 15, you might have noticed I skipped over them with a purpose. It's for now. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, 
and before the mercy seat. So we shall make atonement for the holy place. Listen, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness, that there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. No one can meet with God because you're unclean until ceremonially you have been made clean by the death and the application of blood before the throne of God, before His mercy seat. No man shall be in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for the people, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. The message is clear. You can't Come in here with your sin. A holy God will break out against you and you will die and serve your own punishment. Beware. Beware. Once a year, remember. But always ministering. We move from verse 7 to verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. The purpose of the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle here is given. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this. So all of the ministrations that are going on in the holy place and in the most holy place, what is it about? Now in concise fashion given here. The Holy Spirit is indicating, the Holy Spirit is speaking this, that the way into the holiest of all, listen, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. While they were still using the first tabernacle, while they were still making these offerings, while the high priest yet ministered, once a year, and the other priest ministered always. The message is this. There is an impasse. The services, letter A in your notes, were indicative of a revelatory impasse. An impasse means no way through. You come to an impasse in an argument, means you cannot settle it. There's no way to settlement. In Montana, we're very familiar with the sign that says, on the road in the country, impassable when wet. Just try that out in the Missouri breaks. It really means what it says. You're not going to get through. There's an impasse. The way into God's presence was not yet revealed or made known. There is yet a necessity for more revelation for man to find the way through into the presence of God, says the writer of Hebrews. God has not revealed another way. At the point of revelation with the old covenant and the tabernacle standing, there was a spiritual and physical 
dead end in a near approach of God. Only once a year. This is the indicator. Only once a year. It is a blessing that God dwells in our midst. It is wonderful we come to a tabernacle called the tabernacle of meeting where we meet with God, yet we may not approach. Yet we have no business close to him. We are unclean. The way is shut. And it reminds us and it indicates to us that the holiest of all is not for us at this time if we are Hebrews. The high priest once a year going behind that heavy veil uh, beyond which no light permeates. Scholars tell us that veil was four inches thick. You can even imagine the sound of it, the way it was. In his special linen clothes, all white, all white, from turban to the sashes to the linen gowns to the footgear he went in white, and then he approaches with the proper amount of incense and the burning coals and the blood with him there. And what would be the sound and what would be the sight and how would he feel? I'm going into the presence of God. I'm the high priest. I have to do this. I'm going before God. God, help me as he tries with his strength to move the veil to the side that he might enter in. And what would be the sound? What would be the sound as the coals sizzled and the incense added and the wafting of the smoke and the silence of the place? The gold yet shining over the mercy seat. I'm in. I'm here. I'm before God. I've got blood in my hands. Oh, Lord God, what am I doing here? I think he wouldn't be able to wait until it was over. Until the offering had been made for his own sin and been accepted. Mercy had been granted to him and the offering made for the people and for the very temple and for the very or the tabernacle and for the places because the, the places where people touch were made unclean. And then leaving once a year. The way is not yet open. I'm back on the other side of the veil. Well, what does it mean to us? It means that the way to God's presence then was not yet revealed. But it means the way into God's presence has now been revealed, has now been exposed the future that was spoken of through all of these ministrations of the priests are now ours, are now here. And we are one step closer to God than man has been since Adam and Eve walked in the garden in his very presence. We need to let go of the closed way and accept the truth of the word of God, like Ephesians 2, verse 14, I begin to read. 
Paul says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Speaking of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles who were also separated. The, the Gentiles, if we were there in those days as Gentiles, which most of us are, we couldn't even get into the temple at all. We couldn't even get close. The outer of the outer courts was this big area called the court of the Gentiles. And that's as far as a Gentile ever got. Then there was a court for the children of Israel. And there was the court of the women. And then there was the inner place. And then there was the holy place where only the priests ministered. And then there was the most holy place where only one, the high priest, ministered once a year. Every single symbol is that man is separated from God. Though God condescends to come near, man may not. The way wasn't open. Yet now, in Christ, Himself, he is our peace. Paul goes on to say, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments. What kept the Jews and the Gentiles apart? The law of commandments, ordinances, so as to create in himself a new man from the two, thus making priests. Jew and Gentile are together in the church because what Jesus did in breaking down the barrier between the two that the law held. Sorry, you're a Gentile. You're out here. Don't take offense. You just can't come any closer because you're a, well, a Gentile. There you go. There's no way for you. Verse 16, Paul goes on that he might reconcile them both. Both are sinners. Both are unkeen. Both need to be covered. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Listen, thereby putting to death the enmity. No more fighting between Jews and Gentiles, but oneness and brotherhood through faith in Christ. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. And to those who are near. The Gentiles are far off. And even the nearness of the Jews wasn't near enough. For through him, verse 18, we both have access to, by the one spirit, to the Father. The way is open. The veil was rent. When Jesus on the cross said to the thief, Today... Today you shall be with me in paradise. The way is opened. The past services signaled the way was still closed. Letter B. The services were symbolic of sanguine sacrifices. The services were symbolic of sanguine Sacrifices, S-A-N-G-U-I-N-E. Kids, that's for free. Why pick that word? Number one, it starts with S. That actually was secondary. I was looking for something else. And I found this. We don't use sanguine very much. Sanguine by definition, the first definition is eager hopefulness. So they talked about the prospects of their football team making it to the Super Bowl. They were both sanguine. 
eagerly hopeful. But the contrast is its other meanings. The third meaning is this, bloodthirsty. Eager hopefulness and bloodthirsty? And the third part of the third definition, bloodshed and bloody. So let me say my title of letter B this way. The services were symbolic of the bloody business of the sacrifices which held an eager hopefulness for the future. The services were symbolic of sanguine sacrifices. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which, listen, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect or complete, better translation, complete in regard to the conscience. Always there was an incompleteness. Always they knew that they were still guilty that things had not been permanently and completely covered, even after the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would come out of the high place and go back to the people, the people immediately again began to do what? Tally up sins. Tally up sins for another year from the very minute of the him coming out of that holy place. And they were chalking up the charts again, what will need to be covered again next year. They were not complete. The gifts and the sacrifices were a bloody business, and I will let the Bible illustrate itself by going to Numbers 28, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to, to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, hear this, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offered shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening. As the morning grain offering and its drink offering, you shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord every single day two lambs die. The grain offering from the produce of the lamb is offered, of the land, I should say. The oil and the wine, the drink offering, Burn before God, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Sweet. 
How could that be? Sabbath offerings. Verse 9. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Every day, two lambs. Every day, grain. Every day, the drink offering. Every day, every day, every day. On the Sabbath day, two more. Two more lambs. More offerings. Monthly offerings. Verse 11. Numbers 28. And at the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering to the, uh, mixed with oil for each bull, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for, for the one ram, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb, as a burnt offering of sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be a half a hen of wine for a bull, one-third of a hen for a ram, one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to the Lord shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering, blood, grain, wine, day by day, week by week, month by month, a bloody business. The services of the tabernacle were sanguine, bloodthirsty, deadly. But to God, a sweet-smelling aroma of placation, a symbol Sanguine sacrifices. Note, our text said, for the present time. This tells us there's a limit to that time. For the present time, while the tabernacle stood, while they were making ministry, this went on. And in A.D. 70, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and the prophecy of Christ was fulfilled that the temple that Herod had built in which ministrations were going on by priests, would be totally and completely thrown down, and it was never, never, never to this day rebuilt. Done. And some people just can't let it go. We can't be those people what are you asking for when you ask for the law? What are you asking for when you want priests other than Christ? You're asking for blood. But who shall it be? The tabernacle, the temple was designed to wear out. Just like manna in the wilderness. It was temporary. It was the, for the time of their wandering. And even each day the manna would come in the morning and it would wear out by night and go away. It had a purpose. It's fulfilled. The law, 
the tabernacle, the priesthood, all were waiting to pass away. Hebrews 8.13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete, listen, is growing old and is ready to vanish away as it did in A.D. 70. We have to remember the last gasp of the tabernacle and its ministrations is the first breath of life for the church. The last gasp of the tabernacle ministries of the priest is the first breath of life for the church. And the new covenant church is born and the high priest of Jesus, Jesus ministers. He said, I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy. And he fulfilled it and now he has gone beyond it to the new covenant. And Paul proclaims this in Romans 3 of this new, new time. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from the law is revealed. It hadn't been revealed yet, but now it is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. They foretold this time. They opened the way so that we would see it when it comes. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. The covering is now not with animals. The covering is now not temporary. The covering and the taking care of the wrath of God in punishment is taken care of by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over, listen, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. The way is open. The path is clear. The sacrifice is made. Brethren, he says in Romans 10.1, let go, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are stuck in the past. They're in the museum. The way is closed. And seeking to establish, being, for they being ignorant, excuse me, of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, let's stop the bloodletting and let's get on to the enthusiastic, exuberant hopefulness that it pointed to in Jesus Christ. Letter C. The services were reminiscent of a future reformation. Verse 10. The services were reminiscent of a future reformation. Verse 10 says, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. 
What they were doing was what God willed them to do, what God commanded them to do in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it pointed ahead to a time when that would be completely reformed. That worship would be changed for the better. They provided only an external cleansing that year by year and day by day was signaled through the sacrifices that they were not completely covered. And the guilt and punishment was still upon them. The law was incomplete because it depended upon human flesh. As Romans 8 says in verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. To keep the law, you had to keep all of it. To keep all of it, your flesh had to follow along with all of it. And no one was ever able to do all of it. And so all were condemned by the law. There was a little book when I was a child, one of my favorites. I remember being having that book read to me by my mom and my older sisters. And I remember reading it even to my younger brothers later. It was called The Little Engine That Could. The Little Engine That Could. And it was a story about this little steam engine who was really small, only had one driver wheel, had a cute little face. And he lived right below this big tall mountain. And he would watch the big trains, the big engines pull the line of cars behind them up that steep mountain. And he was too little. He couldn't do it. Then one day there was a need for an engine to pull a train over the mountain. It was an important time. There was an emergency. And the only available engine was the little engine. So the little engine got in front of all those cars and he started chugging up that mountain. And he started chugging. And he started saying, I think I can, 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 I think I can. I... And he pulled it over the mountain. But you know what? That's a lie. That little engine was too small. It was immature. It was a baby. And it couldn't pull the load of cars over the mountain no matter what he wanted to think. He was still too small. The little engine that could, can't. That's us with the law. We cannot pull that train of cars over the mountain in our immaturity any more than Israel could. It's a lost cause for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. You can't pull it over. There's too much weight. What's the good news? What is the hope? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of his sin, the little engine that could, we that can't stand on the side and watch Jesus pull the emergency train over the top of the mountain and we grab on the back and swing in, baby. And he pulls us along with him that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. 
Verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The principle is this. Is that anything man may bring, anything we may bring to God is external to the flesh. But what Jesus brings is eternal. It is of the Spirit. It is forever. And it is successful. Let go. Let go of the past. Let go of trying to clean up everything before you come to God. And even while you're with God thinking, I will clean myself when God says, I've cleaned you, follow me. You are washed. You are white. I dwell in you. You may approach. The future reformation is the approach to God. He could not relieve a guilty conscience. Mosaic law proclaimed day by day, week by week, month by month, man's legal responsibility to pay the price for their sin before God. There's an old idea that the old Mosaic law provided all men, provided all a man needed to please God. In other words, to have a clear conscience. That's wrong. The law was designed differently. The law was designed to create a guilty conscience to drive men to God in despair. As Romans 3 says, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It takes you to understanding your sinner, and does nothing about cleaning it up. See, the law is, is like a ruler. I, I'm not an artistic person. And so when I tell my hand to move and, and make something, it, it doesn't do it like I want it to. I've got an idea how it should look, but it never does. Even the simple thing like making a straight line. You know, even with lines on the paper, I go to like make a line on the line and my line in straight. And I bring a ruler. And every time I use a ruler, it reminds me, without me, you can't draw a straight line. You stink. You can't do it. Your lines are unclean. They transgress the line. Here it is. It proves you can't do it. And no matter how many rulers I've used in my entire life, I still can't draw a straight line freehand. The flesh won't do it. I can't follow the ruler's law. But I know I'm guilty. Romans 3.19 that came before 20 says this, Now we know. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law declares us unable to draw straight lines to God. And the principle is this, all men desire some external service or sacrifice to do themselves to ease their conscience. To ease their conscience. They want some kind of service to do. But we, but what we need is an internal service to clear the conscience. Christian, you have to learn that if you're keeping a score of your sins after believing in Christ, you're trying to live by the law. Put the ruler back in your little desk. You know the one, the lift-up lid. That's where it belongs. Jesus draws the straight line for you. From himself to God. And you come with him. Too many of you are living under the law. Stop. I'm not saying you don't obey God. I'm just saying why you obey God is different. Your conscience must be cleared in Christ. Let go and lay a hold of the present, looking ahead to future reformation. That's freedom. I hope our trip to the museum was worth it. Let's pray. Lord, bless your words, of which there were many today. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me through your Son's shed blood on the cross. Let our conscience be free of dead works and be celebratory of the blood of Christ shed once for all. This we believe by faith. In Jesus' name whom we pray, amen.